You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organisation pursuing real learning, original scholarship and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to another episode of Islam, the the truth about the religion of peace, so-called religion of peace. I'm Stephen Heiner and with me today is Dr. Serge Trifkovich. Dr. Trifkovich, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure to be with you again. When we last spoke, we were speaking about angels, devils, the afterlife, some of the theological tenets of Islam. And one of the phrases you alluded to in there was the invented phrase, people of the book. I wanted to revisit that. Who invented that? What does that imply? And then we can talk a little bit about how Islam understands Christianity and and how we see different Christian episodes and Old Testament episodes portrayed in the Quran. Uh, People of the Book is a term which denotes uh, other two monotheistic faiths, uh, Judaism and Christianity. Of course, as far as Muslims are concerned, they're infidels and they will go to hell, but they nevertheless have uh, the option of living under Islam as second-class citizens whose basic rights will be safeguarded provided they pay the poll tax, the so-called jizya, and I quote, with the trembling hand of abject submission. In other words, even the act of collecting the poll tax is supposed to symbolize their acceptance of their inferior status under Sharia. on the other hand, for uh, polytheists, for uh, for instance, Hindus, uh, the option is simply conversion to Islam or death. And even though in practice it doesn't mean that all of the Hindus that fell under Muslim rule were murdered, nevertheless the magnitude of the slaughter in the subcontinent uh, exceeded anything seen uh, during the Islamic conquest of North Africa, Asia Minor, or uh, the Iberian Peninsula. So, for the people of the book, uh, the option of acceptance of Islamic overlordship uh, was present, and uh, certainly in the early stages of the Islamic rule in uh, the newly conquered parts, there was a certain economic logic to it, because the more people accepted Islam, uh, the smaller the tax base. Uh, the jizya, the poll tax, could be quite ruinous for, in particular, North African Christians who would often sell their children into slavery, some of their children, in order to pay the tax. Uh, we witnessed something similar in the Balkan Peninsula, where uh, the Ottomans Uh, during the early stages of their conquest in the 15th and 16th centuries were not uh, exerting a great deal of pressure on the local Christian population to convert and uh, yet with uh, the increasingly onerous tax burden in the 18th century it uh, uh, became somewhat attractive to become a Muslim simply in order to escape the crushing burden of, of the tax. Also, in the closing stages of the Ottoman rule in in southeastern Europe, uh, the local uh, 
converts who actually ran uh, the administration, particularly in Bosnia, Serbia, Bulgaria, the Danubian provinces, today's Romania, were in fact more harsh and more exacting of uh, uh, their Christian subjects than uh, the Ottomans in Constantinople itself. Well, so it's, uh, being, a, being people of the book is an advantage in that you get to, with trembling hand, pay as opposed to simply being killed. That's right. And uh, in reality, this also meant that uh, substantial Christian communities were able to survive until uh, the modern time. In the Middle East, for instance, the Armenians in today's Turkey, until uh, the genocide uh, perpetrated by the Ottomans between 1915 and, and uh, 1919. Also, uh, a large Maronite Christian community in Lebanon, the Orthodox in uh, Syria and, and Palestine, and also uh, a large uh, community of different denominations in uh, I Iraq and, and the Copts uh, in, in Egypt. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, it was really towards the end of the Ottoman Empire when it was increasingly decrepit and the local officials were able to improvise their own rules that the situation became intolerable, in particular, for instance, for the Armenians during World War I, when they were accused of being disloyal to the authorities during the Russian advance from the Caucasus into today's eastern Turkey, northeastern Turkey, or uh, in the Lebanon, where in uh, the second half of the 19th century there were several uh, episodes of mass murder of uh, the Maronites, or in Bulgaria, where the famous Bulgarian atrocities in 1875-76 uh, were concealed by the Israeli government uh, for geopolitical reasons, but uh, were nevertheless uh, uh, unmasked as such by uh, Gladstone and the liberal opposition. So that option for many centuries meant that uh, those communities were stifled in uh, the growth and development, and there were all sorts of limitations. For instance, uh, ruined churches could not be repaired, and new ones could not be built except with special dispensation. And uh, the dimmies, the so-called protected people of the book, could not, for instance, wear a belt or ride a horse or uh, possess a weapon. They were obliged to provide accommodation for Muslim troops uh, on the Gazat, uh, on, on, on Jihad, for three days with no compensation, and so on, and so on. It's the so-called Pact of Umar, and it's no pact. Umar was, uh, by the way, uh, the second uh, successor to Muhammad, uh, the caliph who was killed by one of his servants in uh, 652. And uh, uh, it was simply an imposed uh, set of rules uh, on the take-it-or-leave-it basis. And of course, if the Dimi violated any of the terms, specifically uh, if there was some kind of rebellion or insurgency, or if uh, they helped a Christian army entering the Muslim land, as happened with 
the Austrians after the siege of Vienna, the, the very end of the 17th century, then the retribution by the Muslim authorities would be harsh because they are deemed to have lost their right to protection by violating the terms of the pact. When we think about the book, are, are Muslims referring to the Quran, or are they referring to the Old Testament, or to some admixture of both? Well, uh, the book, in uh, the case of the Jews, of course, refers to the Old Testament, in case of the Christians, primarily to the Gospels, but the Quran is eternal and the only true word of God. Uh, the other two books uh, have been polluted, distorted, and otherwise uh, tempered with. And uh, it is remarkable that, uh, according to the Quran, uh, all of the Jewish prophets and uh, 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 the Christian savior are, in fact, Muslim prophets. And uh, uh, when Muslims say, oh, we respect Jesus. Well, they do not respect him as the son of God, uh, incarnate and uh, co-substantial to Lord the Father. No, no. They respect him as Isa, one in, in the line of, of uh, uh, Muslim prophets who, whose words and deeds were uh, misunderstood and uh, distorted by the Christian tradition and presented in a blasphemous way because to a Muslim the notion of uh, uh, three, per, uh, three uh, uh, forms of one person smacks of polytheism and uh, uh, even the possibility that uh, you could have triune God uh, is uh, uh, is uh, sacrilegious because of the insistence on the absolute unity and transcendence of Allah. So, uh, while traveling as, uh, as a camel rider with the caravans to Palestine, to Jerusalem, to Damascus, as a very young man, Muhammad picked up uh, various stories, Christian and Jewish stories, from itinerant monks and uh, other merchants and uh, uh, presented them in the Quran in a very idiosyncratic way. And uh, it is obvious that uh, uh, this was uh, a patchwork of uh, anecdotal and uh, distorted representations of both Old and New Testament stories. But, uh, of course, his claim is that uh, the word uh, came to him from on high and simply passed through his mouth. That uh, uh, the, uh, the words in the Quran are not his. I'm just the messenger. Exactly. And uh, that's again uh, the crucial difference between the Christian Gospels and the Quran because uh, uh, the Mark and, and Luke uh, uh, and, and John were, of course, and Matthew, uh, not prophets. Uh, they, they were uh, witnesses to certain events or they were recording those events as witnessed by others, but uh, they certainly had no claim to present the word of God in an unadulterated form, whereas uh, in the Quran what we have is 
beyond dispute, an eternal and ever-present word of God, which must not be uh, changed in any way and certainly must not be interpreted. It has to be taken as is. And uh, that's why uh, when you hear Western apologists for Islam saying, oh, it depends how you interpret the Quran. Well, interpretation, if at all possible, comes with the Hadith and the Sunnah, where you may have certain differences of emphasis and where different schools of uh, Islamic jurisprudence may reach somewhat different conclusions. But as for the Quran itself, any attempt at critical reading of the text is, is shirk, it's, it's blasphemous and it's mortal sin. Well, some, let's speak to some of those idiosyncratic uh, notions, Dr. Trifkovich, because again, we're, we're used to the idea of certain stories that we hear in the Old Testament, they're not repeated, they're not told a different way. You know, when we hear, when, when Christians read about Moses and the crossing of the Red Sea, the story is not repeated in another part of the Old Testament or uh, another, uh, in another book in another way, whereas in, in the Quran, this is so. And give our listeners some sense of some of those idiosyncratic stories you were talking about. Well, specifically in uh, Surah 27, Ayat 17 to 19, uh, Allah narrates the advance of Solomon's army of the jinn, men and birds through the valley of the ants, calling on them to enter their dwellings, lest they be crushed. Later on, the winds are made to obey Solomon's orders, while demons have to dive deep in the sea to bring him treasures of precious stones. In the chapter of the jinn, we learn that one morning as Muhammad was reciting verses behind a palm tree, a group of the demonic jinn heard him, repented, professed belief and pledged never to worship Satan again. Elsewhere, swarms of flying creatures pelt elephants with stones of baked clay. Alexander the Great, and by the way, he was also supposedly a righteous monotheist, located the sun's setting place. Seven young men enter a cave and sleep for 309 years, which seems to be a garbled version of uh, the seven sleepers of Ephesus. Allah disagrees with Moses, who claimed that he was the most knowledgeable of men, and instructs him to find one Hadr with the help of a whale. The latter proceeds to kill a boy allegedly predestined to become a disbeliever and thus proves his superior wisdom. And so on. Allah transforms Jews into apes in some chapters, swine in the others. But uh, many Old Testament stories are really changed beyond recognition and can be treated as Muhammad's source only in the most general sense. For instance, Abraham did not offer Isaac but Ishmael as a sacrifice. Haman, uh, so-called Haman, was Pharaoh's chief minister, even though the Haman known to Jews lived in Babylon 1,000 years later. Moses was picked from the river not by his sister, but by his mother. A Samaritan was the one who molded the golden calf for the children of Israel and misguided them, even though Samarians arrived only after the Babylonian exile. The accounts of Moses' life are sketchy and say nothing of his character, descent, the time he was sent as a prophet, the purpose of his mission, and where and how and why he appointed Aaron as his deputy. Uh, 
It does not relay the argument between them and the people of Israel, which is crucial to the story. Moses' encounter with God in the burning bush is told differently on three different occasions in the Quran. On one, Surah 27, blessed is he who is in the fire and who is about it. But in the next surah, the voice says, Moses, I am God, the Lord of all being. And finally, in Surah 20, God says, Moses, I am thy Lord, put off thy shoes, thy art in the, thou art in the holy valley, Toa. The story of Noah reflected Muhammad's dilemmas and difficulties rather than Noah's mission. And even the names of the idols that Noah warns against are all in Arabic. Now, we mentioned that Quran makes reference to Jesus, Mary, and events related to them, but uh, with a key distinction. It explicitly denies that Jesus was crucified and died on the cross. Allah made the Jews so confused that they crucified someone else instead who had the likeness of Christ. And now we quote from Surah 4. They slew him not nor crucified, but it appeared so unto them. Muslims claim that an imposter by the name of Shabih was crucified and he resembled Jesus only in his face. It seems illogical to those who count proud as one of the 99 most beautiful names of Allah that Jesus, who was capable of raising the dead and healing the blind, willingly submitted to the cross and failed to destroy the Jews who intended to hurt him, to uh, uh, the Bedouin mind of the desert. It was simply inconceivable. And Islam generally rejects the whole concept of the cross. It is for a Muslim against reason to assume that Allah would not forgive man's sins without the cross if he wanted to do so, because it would imply limits to his power. Quote, he forgives whom he will and he chastises whom he will. This is from Surah 5. And salvation in Islam is based on a continuous effort to obtain Allah's favor, which will be rewarded in heaven if he so wills. We can never be sure. Good deeds are a requirement for obtaining the reward, but not the fruit of love and faith. And as I mentioned, the denial of the Trinity is also explicit. Allah begets not, i.e. he is no father, and he was not begotten, he is no son, and no one is like him, which means he is no Holy Spirit. Uh, again, according to the Quran, there are infidels who say Allah is the third of three, but Isa is not the son of Allah, only a special prophet. And the Christian's country claim shows how they are perverted. Well, and you, you, you've talked about the fact that the, the problem with the Trinity for Muhammad and subsequently for Islam is at root a confusion about the Christian notion of the Trinity, not so much potentially an objection. He didn't really understand what the Trinity was. Can you, can you speak about that a bit? Uh, well, let us not forget that uh, to uh, an uneducated uh, nomad, who uh, by all accounts was also illiterate, uh, the notion of Trinity is both conceptually and uh, emotionally too complex to comprehend and internalize. Uh, an all-powerful creator who is ultimately the only actor in the universe and whose total transcendence means total unknowability 
was uh, an easier concept to accept and digest uh, for Muhammad to present and for his followers to believe in. Because, uh, uh, quite frankly, the Trinitarian uh, concept is both subtle and complex. And uh, an appeal uh, to uh, the very base human urges uh, through an Allah which commands wars of conquest where the plunder, the loot, will be rightfully yours and where if you die you go straight to a very sensuous paradise and if you survive you enjoy the fruits of, of, uh, uh, of your endeavors is far more appealing than the notion of uh, redemption through suffering and uh, salvation through love. So I would say, even though it may be politically incorrect to do so, that uh, to uh, the collective psyche and uh, uh, the level of intra-tribal discourse of 7th century Arabia, uh, the, the concept of uh, a fairly simple, uh, supremely transcendent and all-powerful God was uh, both easier to understand and uh, more attractive in implications and uh, in Muhammad's presentation than uh, 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 the subtle, complex, and uh, to their minds, somewhat ambiguous Christian message. Well, the we've been talking about some of the facts of the, the case in terms of you know, Mohammed managing to convert uh, the devils uh, back uh, to uh, being angels again. I mean, the man's remarkable in his preaching skills. But we also see a change in tone which we don't observe in the Old and New Testaments. Again, coming from a, a Christocentric or Judeocentric reading of scriptures, there is a unity in the tone used in both the Old and the New Testament. Obviously, St. Paul writes differently from uh, Peter or Matthew, but there is a a sameness in the way the message is delivered. Whereas with the Quran, we observe a difference, not just from when the verses were written and the context they were written, uh, but as time progresses, we see a change between the Meccan and the Medinan verses. Can you speak a little bit about that in context with, with what we've, we've been discussing? Uh, this is a very important point. Uh, and uh, in order to uh, understand uh, this shift, it would be necessary to know at what time which particular uh, verse of the Quran was revealed, because uh, until uh, the move from uh, uh, Mecca to Medina, Muhammad was uh, a marginalized, self-appointed prophet with a fairly small band of followers, and uh, uh, he was in a somewhat precarious position in the Meccan society, where he was certainly not accepted uh, as a prophet, quite the country, he was uh, subjected to ridicule, or uh, even though the Muslims make a lot of uh, the danger he was in, in fact, uh, they the move to Medina was primarily motivated by the desire to establish a community 
in which they would be the masters of their destinies. So, uh, while uh, the while still in Mecca, he basically warns against sin. He warns against non-acceptance of uh, Allah and his messenger, but he also says that there is no compulsion in religion. In other words, he's not trying to convert anyone by force for the simple reason that he had no force at his disposal. Uh, but what is also unique uh, with the Quran is that Allah uh, changes his mind. And uh, if there is a discrepancy in the message, then uh, we need to look at uh, the revelation which came last, because that is the one that is valid and applicable. And uh, it is indeed remarkable that uh, Allah, who knows everything that uh, has ever happened and every, anything, everything that will ever happen, changes his mind, because even at the moment of revealing the message which is to be eventually abrogated, he knows that it will be abrogated. But of course we are not allowed to speculate on his motives and uh, on, uh, on his line of reasoning. It, it is shirk. So, uh, once he is established in Medina as a secular ruler who uh, is not only exercising authority over his followers, but eventually uh, controls the destinies of all Medinans, including uh, the Jewish tribe of Ban Qurais, which is uh, eventually slaughtered in the so-called Battle of the Ditch, and where he starts making forays uh, and attacks against Meccan caravans passing by Medina, Muhammad changes his tone. All of a sudden, he becomes self-confident uh, master of life and death. And that's when we have the famous verse of the sword, uh, Surah 9, verse 5, which gives the infidel the choice between conversion, dimitude, or the sword. That's also where we have Allah commanding the slaughter of infidels, waiting in ambush for them, or uh, where we have almost sadistically delicious descriptions of torment and eternal suffering that infidels will experience in hell. So this change of tone obviously accompanied uh, the change of Muhammad's political circumstances and uh, of his local standing. Once he is safely established as a secular ruler who has an increasingly uh, numerous and effective band of followers, he actually reveals a completely new persona and becomes, quite frankly, a warlord uh, who justifies his uh, ad hoc decisions, like, for instance, to violate the holy month of Ramadan, where in pagan Arabia all Fighting was forbidden and uh, the ban was observed by pre-Islamic Arabs. Well, he violated that and duly received uh, dispensation from on high. Likewise, even in his personal life, when two of his wives rebel against his spending too much time with an Egyptian Christian slave girl, uh, Allah uh, helpfully comes to his assistance by 
telling the wives that they have to uh, to uh, obey the prophet regardless of uh, what he decides to do with his slave girls. Well, and you, you're referring to chapters and verses, but it's also helpful, I think, for our listeners to understand, Dr. Rufovich, that there's not a regular versification that, that we're used to, uh, in, in, again, in Christian testaments, but also the arrangement, the idea of having the, the long texts in the beginning. Can you speak about that a bit? Well, it uh, makes uh, the Quran a rather strange book to read because uh, arranging uh, chapters and verses simply by uh, how long they are uh, does not give uh, the sense of continuity or the sense of coherence that we have both in the Old Testament and uh, in the Christian Gospels. It also reflects uh, the random nature of uh, the codification of the Quran itself because Quite a few verses were not actually written down, by, but memorized by uh, Muhammad's followers. Some of them were written on improvised uh, surfaces. Some of them were uh, not even remembered uh, properly by Muhammad himself, uh, and uh, he would sometimes be corrected by some of his followers when it comes to the actual wording of, of the message. So, uh, the codification of the Quran uh, came uh, many years after Muhammad's death. It was not complete until uh, the, the early 8th century, and uh, what we have is, one might say, uh, the best record one can hope for from a semi-literate society in which uh, the oral tradition was uh, uh, hugely respected, but uh, which did not have the concept of a book organized as a coherent uh, and uh, clearly uh, logical uh, sequence of events, either in time or in place or by theme. And uh, this again, reflects uh, both the nature of the society in which it emerged and the historical circumstances. But, of course, once it was codified in that form, it was no longer subject to any revisions. Uh, that, that would be unthinkable. Well, and, and you alluded earlier, Allah changes his mind, and I think Mohammed forgets what Allah may or may not remember. There's uh, an episode you recount in which Mohammed is, is walking by someone in a mosque, and he's repeating some verses, and he remarks to somebody, ah, that reminds me of something I forgot about. Exactly. Uh, or two of his followers were instructed to remember something, uh, a verse, they forgot that, and Mohammed also forgot. So he told them, they forgot, he forgot, and he sort of wrote it off as not that important. Well, by virtue of being forgotten, ipso facto, it wasn't all that important. <laughs> Couldn't have been that important. So again, unlike Christianity, where we have a, a church council in which books are examined, weighed, and looked at for whether they should belong to the canon or not, and there's a definitive uh, definitive period or time that we can look back to, this isn't the same for the Quran. No, uh, and uh, let me add also that uh, the important source of Islamic jurisprudence, which is the Hadith, uh, came into being uh, under the pressure of political events, both in Damascus and in Baghdad, 
where many of ISNADs, the so-called chains of transmission, were rather dubious and uh, were used by the powers that be, often to justify their own legitimacy, uh, because initially the split between the Sunnis and Shiites, Shiites was over the succession. And uh, in, in uh, the Shiite view of the succession, uh, anyone outside uh, Muhammad's uh, direct line uh, was not a legitimate caliph. And of course, uh, uh, the, the caliphs in Damascus based their legitimacy on their belonging to the tribe of Quraysh uh, of Mecca. Uh, Muhammad was its member, but uh, it was a rather tenuous claim considering the fact that the tribe itself only converted to Islam when Mecca fell to uh, the Muslim forces in 630 AD. I'm going to get into this a little bit more in our next episode, talking about the Air, the Arabo-Central uh, notion of, of Islam, that everything is about the desert and, and about the, the peoples there. But can related to that, so as we finish up to today's episode, related to that, the idea of translations, how do, for example, again, for, for Christians, for Jews, the idea of of reading in your own language is accepted in that, well, it's a translation, but there is no definitive, even though we have the Septuagint, for example, it's never been implied in Christianity that if you're not reading the Septuagint, you're not really reading scripture. <laughs> there may maybe some Greek, Greek scholars who, who, who might insist on that, it might be particularly tough, but for what, what, what is the status for Indonesian Muslims, Bengali Muslims, who are not reading the Quran in Arabic. What is the status of their translation? Uh, according to the orthodox uh, Sunni position, the only uh, real Quran is the Arabic Quran, and everything else is the rendering. In other words, you cannot have, like in, in Christian Bible, uh, German Bible or Urdu Bible or Russian Bible, which is still uh, as valid, as uh, uh, authoritative as its Greek or Aramaic original. Uh, there is an almost obsessive focus on uh, the language of the Quran, and uh, it's claimed to be not only pure Arabic, but also uh, superbly and supremely poetic, harmonious, and uh, correct Arabic. And uh, uh, even though experts uh, have pointed out that there are at least two dozen grammatical mistakes in the Quran, according to the Arabic linguistic canon, including a few wrong cases, which are embarrassing for, for the Muslims to explain. Uh, well, they're clearly not wrong because Allah used them. But on the other hand, uh, the, the same construction elsewhere in the Quran is used in the correct way. So it, it is a little uh, uh, tricky. And there are also many foreign words contrary to the claim in the Quran itself that it is uh, pure Arabic, which perplex the companions. Uh, some commentators explain that Muhammad alone spoke so-called perfect Arabic, but uh, Allah's purpose remains indeed mysterious if his word is so inscrutable 
that it baffled even Muhammad's companions and relatives. Uh, the alleged beauty of, of Quranic melody and, uh, and uh, poetic expression even throws some of the reciters into uh, what one might term uh, religious frenzy. You know, when they start reciting the Quran, it becomes an exercise in l'art pour l'artism, in, in uh, the uh, expressiveness for its own sake, where uh, the power and melody of the voice and the words themselves become the replacement for the actual message. Well, I think that is a good place for us to end today's episode. Thanks, as always, for your time, Dr. Trifkovich. Thank you. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members, who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at Fleming.Foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.